Hello and welcome to my podcast. My name is Faith Awemi and this is the first episode of what I'm trying to do as an experiment. If it goes well, I'll try to do more episodes. Today my first guest is Dele Olojede, Pulitzer Prize winner, publisher of Next Newspapers and all-round gentleman. We'll be back right after the break. Hi, Dele. Welcome to this um, podcast experiment. I'm hoping that, you know, after we do this, maybe more people will want to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll try to make you look good or sound okay, good. Okay, okay, that's good. Okay, okay. I think the first thing, let's let's start off with your, your Pulitzer Prize. So you won mm-hmm. that in 2005 for, I think you did, a, you did 10 articles or 10 pieces on Rwanda. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Did you have to go out to Rwanda? Did you stay out there for a while? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. These oh. things, uh, as we say in the old newspaper business, before the blogging era, you have to pound the pavement. So, yeah, okay. yeah I was. Uh, that was actually the last of my, not the last, but one of my several trips to Rwanda over the years since uh, the start of the genocide itself or more accurately since towards the end of the genocide, because at the start of the genocide, I was busy covering the South Africa transition and the upcoming elections that led to Mandela assuming the presidency. So I had been there as the, uh, uh, as the genocide was ending, and then I went back repeatedly over several years, and I never could shake the guilt that... I chose to stay in South Africa at the start of the genocide rather than go to Rwanda. to Rwanda. So I always felt a kind of a special affinity to the place. The reason for the guilt was simply that uh, I thought that if I had gone early and was able to write with great passion about what was going on, perhaps one would have persuaded the world to intervene much earlier and maybe hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. Well, this was probably some kind of a conceit of mine, but I never could shake that. So for that reason, I always went back to Rwanda. And so uh, in 2004, as 2004 approached, I was foreign editor in New York at the time at Newsday. I decided to assign myself in late 2003, the uh, return to Rwanda to go explore a number of issues that had always nagged me about the place uh, on the 10th anniversary of the genocide. So I I went back there and spent uh, nearly four months straight up uh, reporting the stories that were subsequently published in New York starting in May 2004. Yeah. In 2004, yeah. Um, for those listening, if you want to read those stories, uh, if you go on to Pulitzer.org and just search for Daily Ology there and, you know, you'll see, you'll see all the stories there. They're all published out there. So, I mean, coming back to you, did the prize change your life? I mean, what happens when someone wins a Pulitzer Prize? Do people start picking your calls or do people just want to start yeah, talking to you? Yeah, actually, they start calling you. They don't wait for you to call them. <laughs> so, I mean, why are, they, why are they offering you? Well, basically, you know, people wanted you to talk to their board, to appear on talk shows, to uh, because all of a sudden they ascribe 
uh, extraterrestrial intelligence to you <laughs> that was not described the day before. So all of a sudden you became the wise man who knew everything. So whether it was the World Bank calling or a corporate board calling or uh, a university asking you to speak to their students or, and so on. And then, of course, you start getting letters from all kinds of people across the world, including the president of your native country yeah. and so on and so forth. I think, I think was President Obasanjo put out a statement at the time congratulating yes, you. Did. And he sent me a personal letter and, you know, Bola Tinubu and, you know, all the whole lot of them. Okay. It was, uh, so it, it made you, it, it, let's just call it a, an ego inflator. It inflated <laughs> your ego. <laughs> yes. okay. what, was the most, what was the most tempting offer someone threw at you on account of the Pulitzer? Um, I think it wasn't so much uh, an, a tempting offer as a whole series of things, cascades of things. Um, and uh, more importantly, the timing was particularly good because that's when I started thinking about the possibility of starting next in a very serious way. Okay. So it made raising money easier, of course. It made attracting talent easier, all of those things. Uh, were very positive. My my daughters thought I was some kind of a genius because they sort of <laughs> saw my name everywhere. So that was pretty good. Uh, if we go back a bit, so mm. you work with, um, this is a part of you, I don't think many people outside of journalism know this, mm. but, but you work closely with Daily Giwa. Now, what what I find interesting is, you know, at the time of Newsworld, you were very young. Daily Giwa himself was young. He yeah. died, he died, I think it was yeah. 39. You know, he was killed. 39, yeah. Yeah, he was killed at the yeah. You were 26 at the time when he died, you know what I mean? I was actually 25. 25, I sorry. at 26, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Were you very yeah. Were you very close to him? We were very close. Uh, we were very close friends. And he was, of course, I was also my mentor and my boss. And we were close to the point of in and out of one another's homes and I knew all his family very well and we did many things together, uh, got in trouble together and those kinds of things. We were exceptionally close. Oh, That's right. why it was particularly devastating. I mean, how did I yeah. how did I hit you? Well, I, I, I remember the day clearly, Sunday, October 19, 1986. And uh, I had gone to play squash, I believe, with Sojia Kirinade, who was also a colleague. Okay. at Newswatch at the time. And I returned to my apartment in Oregon, which was not very far from the office, only to find all these messages uh, waiting for me. Uh, something terrible had happened to Dele, so I rushed over to his house, by which time they'd taken him to the hospital in Opebi, and then I rushed to the hospital from there and found him uh, on this gunny. He was already dead by then, uh, covered uh, uh, with a tarp. And so I pulled the thing open and, and saw him there, stark naked, with his torso completely blasted apart. And oh, what I remember the most about that day was somehow this image of his left wrist, where his watch had been, the skin uh, where the, the watch had been was preserved when everything else was burnt. So you could see the image of the skin on his, of the watch on his skin. And I remember seeing that, and I remember being extremely angry that day. Uh, I believe I was the one who drafted the 
official uh, Newswatch uh, statement to the press, uh, which probably accounted for his particular harshness and directness, where I basically accused the Babangida's uh, government of being behind the murder. And so the next morning, they sent soldiers to Newswatch offices and shut us down. And, so, they, so, they, so they actually uh, shot you down after the editor had been blown, you know, had yes. been killed. Uh, on Monday, October 20, 1986, the soldiers took over our offices on Oregon Road uh, in Oregon, Ikeja, uh, from early in the morning. And uh, uh, they started arresting some of the senior editors shortly afterwards, a few days afterwards, Ray Apple, Dan Agbese, Yakubu Muhammad, and so on. And one thing sort of led to the other. Because my apartment was pretty close to the office, it sort of naturally became a gathering spot for all the writers and editors and so on. And uh, eventually, as they were arresting the senior editors, people began to think of, uh, you know, alternatives about how to deal with the government. And it was around that time that the Ford Foundation came to me uh, to say that they will pay for me to get out of the country and go to grad school at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who, who, who disclosed this to me was uh, Dr. Richard Joseph, who at the time the was running foundation. Yes, prepender okay. politics in the Nigeria. He's a yeah. political scientist. He's yeah. at Northwestern now, but yeah. at the time he was uh, running Ford in West Africa. So he, he uh, arranged for the scholarship, and Columbia gave me a place. And so the idea was that I was going to go to Columbia for, for, for a year of grad school to cool off yeah. and then go back to Nigeria. But uh, in the meantime, they banned us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the book that I published on Delegua with uh, Nukaba Dino Yojo had been seized from the printers, from the publishers, and so on. So it became clear that I couldn't really just go home uh, again, at least certainly not right away after grad school. And it was from there I was hired by Newsday and my career went in a different direction. Right. Sorry to come back to the to the point of age. I'm just trying to think about it. I mean, you were young at the time. Did you feel young yeah. or, or, or was it just a question of, you know, the newsroom was, was the newsroom where, you know, nobody judged you for being, I imagine you were one of the youngest there. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing. I think my generation was really sort of the first time that entire sets of new journalism recruits into newsrooms were those who came out with university degrees. Up until then, it was uh, catch as catch can. And, you know, you had posters rising to the position of reporter and so on. So we were the smart young ones who came out of the universities, almost uniformly with fistfuls of degrees. We were very young. There was a lot of optimism and wild energy about the country that Nigeria was going to be made right. So we were fearless and we didn't even think we were too young at all. Also, remember, in Nigerian journalism, there had been a long history of people at very, very young uh, age holding very responsible positions. You know, uh, Peter Enaro was 21 when he became editor of the, of the Daily Times in 1960 or 1961, I believe. Um, he was 21 years old, uh, you know. And you remember also people who ran the country after the first civilians had been bumped up by the military were all sort of 28 to 32 yeah. Yeah. 
And so um, by the time we got to take over these newsrooms, uh, we were quite young, but it wasn't like a big shock. Also, by the time the Delegiwa death happened, I had, you know, kind of made my bones, as they used to say in the old mafia stories, because I had uh, done a number of things that, you know, raised my profile a little bit for, for a young star, including... Yeah, you did the, a story on Fela, I think. Yes, okay. yes, yes. The stories that freed Fela from prison and so on. I, I did this. So we were fairly confident people. We felt we were well-educated and ready to take on the challenges of reforming our country, even under military rule. And, you know, also in those days, uh, newspaper reporters were not completely impoverished as they are today. <laughs> I mean, you could come out of university, get a newspaper reporter's job and be able to buy an entry-level car and rent a one- or two-bedroom apartment on the mainland somewhere. Uh, and so, you know, we, we were not... Uh, uh, willy-nilly pushed into the arms of those who wish to corrupt us, even though I imagine the level of corruption occurred at, at the time as well. So, I mean, you, you left Newsday in December 2004. Correct. Uh, um, I think the Pulitzer, was it announced in 2005 or 2004? It was announced in 2005. It, it, was, uh, it was announced in 2005. The Pulitzer Prize is always awarded for work from the preceding from the year. year. So you had already so left. So I had already left. Okay. Yes, it was bittersweet for the paper because, as you can imagine, winning a Pulitzer Prize for any newspaper uh, was such a big deal. I mean, the old news, the old newspaper came out to celebrate the publisher, the editor, everybody on down uh, to messengers. There would be champagnes and parties and things. It was always a big moment for a newspaper. But there was I had already left, and uh, they had to fly me back in from. From, from South Africa. I remember I got the news the day before the official announcement as I was walking off a golf course in <laughs> George in the Western Cape of South Africa and the phone rang and it was New York calling to say, you've got to get on the flight tonight out of South Africa to get to New York on time so for the announcement to come over the wires. Um, and so they, 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 they sent a car to pick up my family and they were still uh, in New York and brought them into the newsroom. The girls were quite young. And so by the time I arrived, after flying all night, they were all already there. And the official announcement always came over the wires at precisely 3 p.m. And then, of course, the old newsroom screams and they start pouring champagne and stuff like that. So, yes, I had already left the paper before before winning. I mean, what was your, what was your biggest influence? I mean, in terms of as a journalist, you know, in your time in your time at Newsday and Newswatch, or or generally in your career. I mean, if you were to name maybe, say, I'll, I'll give you two people who've mm -hmm. influenced you as a journalist the most. So the first one, obviously, is uh, Delegiwa, who shaped my very early career, the very early stages of my career. Uh, I came out of the University of Lagos in 1982, did a quick stop over at Radio Nigeria for like a month, and then joined National Concord. At the time, I believe Delegiwa was the editor of the Sunday Concord. And so I fell under his influence from very early on in my career. So he shaped the early part of my career. Uh, the second biggest influence in a direct sense uh, would be Les Payne, uh, who was my boss uh, at Newsday for so many years until I left in 2004. Uh, also a Pulitzer Prize winner himself, 
uh, and uh, you know, African American, very outspoken, uh, and uh, a very very fine mentor uh, who took chances on people whether or not they were ready. And I think uh, he did uh, a lot of that in my case. So those were the two most direct influences, of course. There are so many others, writers and so on, who sort of influenced me and uh, even my desire to, to pursue journalism as a, as a way of making a living and uh, causing trouble in the world. Yeah. I mean, you, you, were, you were, was it, you were one of, is it 29 or 28 children? Well, it depended on when you counted. Uh, let's just say <laughs> twenty-eight, so because you know there was attrition over the years. Yes, but uh, uh, one of twenty-eight would be the most accurate. Twelve, number twelve of twenty-eight. Yes. And you know, I've seen stories about how you know, growing up, you uh, you grew up in Ife, okay, and you you were sort of exposed to people like Walisho Inka, Chino Achebe at a very young age. So you know, was your was your part? Well, I mean, your part in life, was this set for you very early uh, in such a way that you were always going to be a writer and nothing else? Yes, I think I'm sort of uh, lucky or special in that way that there was never any confusion as to what I wanted to do. Because remember, you know, you're growing up in the 60s uh, in a place like Ife, university town, all these dashing young professors had moved down from Ibadan to come and set up, you know, the Department of Dramatic Arts. Wallace Inka was uh, heading the department then, uh, and they were producing all these plays, Olaro Timi and so on. They were all there. And uh, that was a time that the concept of uh, Tan and Gang was pretty much alive. So that the theater where they were trying out all these new plays and, and, and uh, works they were creating was actually in town, Oriolokum Theater. Okay. So when they were doing their riazas on Sundays, we would just go there and, and be watching them and, and imbibing all of these things and dreaming of being like these people. And of course, the, the Yoruba traveling theater, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, was always, was also alive uh, then. Baba Salah and his, uh, and his comedy group were always traveling from town to town, performing live, and uh, Drew Ladipo and his troupe uh, with great historical plays from the old Yoruba Empire. And uh, um, this old man who, uh, towards the end of his life, was making movies, I, his name escapes me now, he also, you know, was traveling with his troops. So you were exposed to all these cultural influences. And it was very clear to me that that was what I would like to do, particularly I would like to write. Okay. And also the, the Daily Times was pretty powerful and influential at the time. Uh, and uh, you found all of these people writing columns with their picture in the Daily Times and the Sunday Times. And I said, I want to be like this guy. So... In fact, by elementary school, I was pretty certain that was what I was going to do. And so when it came time to apply to universities, I never applied for anything else other than journalism. In fact, uh, to tell you how extremist I was, I never applied for any other school than the Department of Mass Communication at the University of Lagos because I wanted to go study with Professor Alfredo Kubo. Oh, so yeah, I didn't apply to IFE, I didn't apply to Ibadan, I didn't apply to Usuka, I didn't apply for law engineering, 
you know, medicine, all of those, those things that your parents would tell you to do. So my father hardly spoke to me for three years while I was in <laughs> university. Because as far as he was concerned, only vagrants went into journalism. If you didn't study law or medicine or engineering, then you were nothing. Well, you, so I mean, my mother told me this later, which is actually very funny. So when I joined Concord in 1982... The very week that I joined, I had a big front-page story with my byline on the front page of the newspaper. Wow. And so as my mom recounted the story later, my dad called uh, a couple of his friends, as they usually did at the end of the day at sundown, uh, drinking uh, a little schnapp on his veranda and playing IO game. <laughs> and he showed them the newspaper. I said, I always told you this boy will make something of himself. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I figured by that time he had concluded that maybe it wasn't such a bad thing after all. all right. Apparently, it was the first time the family name had ever appeared in print. So, ah. so, so <laughs> there was, you go. Okay. <laughs> all's, all's well that ends well then, I guess. Exactly, exactly. So at, at Concord, did you did you have any kind of contact with MQO Abiola at the time? or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was very much a man about the place. So, you okay. know, he was a very possible character, fun-loving sort of guy, larger than life. So we all had contact with him uh, in various degrees. Mine was not a kind of a one-on-one thing, but always sort of like in small groups or whatever, whether he invited us to his house for dinner or there was some ceremony that he wanted us to be in or he came into the newsroom, uh, swept in and out, and his wife doing... Uh, who was my boss at the time. She was the managing director of Concord uh, and uh, a great friend uh, till today. Also very influential figure as a, you know, I think if I remember correctly, the first uh, woman to hold major editorial positions of any newspaper in the country uh, before my wife uh, did the same. Okay, so we're going to fast forward now and come back to uh, next after the Pulitzer, you went back to South Africa for a bit, and then you decided, mm. you know, you wanted to do something in Nigeria, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. You know? What was the, yeah. I mean, what was the key driver for this? You know, why would you want to, you know, having done all that, having worked with Newsday, having having won the Pulitzer, why was, you know, taking all of that, you know, personal capital and then heading to Nigeria mm-hmm. and saying you wanted to jump into this morass, if you like? And, yes, try, and try yes. to change things, you know. What were you? Do you think you were overconfident? Um, possibly, and I suppose without being overconfident, you couldn't try something truly substantial because the sheer scale of the difficulty would uh, scare you uh, into uh, uh, not doing anything. So I think it was probably a good thing that I didn't fully appreciate beforehand all the obstacles that one would face and the consequences of uh, all the consequences of the action that one was taking. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it at all. But to answer the question more directly, it was never one thing. I'd never wanted anything in my life other than to contribute in some fashion to making the country uh, a good place that you could be very proud of, that you were born there, and you came from there, and your ancestors were from there. Uh, as I said to you, even when we were very, very young reporters, 
at age 21, 22, 23, 24 in Lagos, we felt that we were on a mission to change the country and we were free to challenge people. Remember all the fights between the Guardian and the, uh, you know, Buhari, Diagman regime, Decree 4, uh, you know, and all my friends who were put uh, in detention for a while. So we, we were never afraid of these guys. We felt it was our country, we were going to change it. So I always had that in me. In fact, I'd always had the idea, given the circumstances of my departure from the country, that one day I was going to come back to this place and we're going to attempt to do this all over again. So that was always there. But then, of course, it went into hibernation for years. I didn't think much of it. I was traveling and walking all over the world and I was busy and enjoying my work and starting a family and raising children. And it was only when it became clear to me that I was being thought of as one of the potential successors to my old boss in New York, Tony Marrow, who was the editor of the paper. And I was kind of going to be put in line of succession as number two or three or whatever that I began to seriously think if I get into this track where I'm running a major American newspaper, I'll never go back home again. And so I began to look for ways of exiting. Uh, and uh, part of that exit strategy was just to take myself out of the newsroom for a while, which is why I assigned myself to go to Rwanda uh, on the 10th anniversary of the genocide to do those stories. Uh, so that those who did uh, uh, accept to step into the succession could be freed without com being constantly second-guessed as to whether Dele was going to jump in or not. And so after that was all done, uh, I then decided to take the buyout at the end of 2004. So I always knew I was going to try and do something. The exact shape of it was not clear to me. And it was only after I had left the paper that I decided, why don't we go try and do a newspaper, sort of similar to Newsday, except that it would be more self-consciously an anti-corruption investigative newspaper, more self-consciously. And the idea behind it was that we were going to, uh, one, demonstrate to the country, a country that was so infernally corrupt, yeah. that we were going to demonstrate that it was possible to have an institution that ran properly that was not based on corruption at all, that was in fact impenetrable, which we achieved, and I think to the, to the great pride of all the people who worked at Next, nobody could ever accuse us of being even remotely suspected of being involved in any corrupt practice. So I wanted to demonstrate that, first of all, that it was possible. And hopefully a lot more people will try it in their own spheres. The second thing was that the country was in such bad shape that I thought that uh, using the skills that I knew I had, uh, which was really my only serious area of strength, uh, I could uh, make sure that the country was very, quite, very clear about its condition that there was no room for self-deception, de that people couldn't say, oh, if only we'd known, we would have acted differently. Yeah. We wanted to deny any Nigerian the opportunity to say if only they'd known. So we're going to show you what's going on, and we hope that by arming the citizen with factual, incontrovertible information, they would take it and use it to act for the betterment of their own country. Now, that was a big assumption that turned out to be false, 
Yeah. Well, that's what we were attempting okay. at the time. Okay, okay so uh, Pulitzer in 2005, Timbuktu Media mm. started in 2008. What accounted... Uh, why, why we it... actually started in 2007, but we didn't start publishing until 2008. Okay, yeah. so what were you, I mean, was it did, it... did it take a long time to raise money? I mean, actually, before I ask the question about raising money, I mean, all the while you were abroad, I imagine you, you, had, you kept contact with people in Nigeria... Yeah, I kept contact with uh, a relatively small uh, number of people in Nigeria, mostly professional colleagues who then were also close, and of course family and so on. So I kept I kept touch, uh, but not in a, an intense way. Remember, I had set off on a new adventure. I mean, this newspaper in New York was sending me all over the world. Uh, living and covering big events, you know, the end of apartheid and the rise of Mandela in South Africa, uh, genocide in Rwanda, famine in uh, Somalia, uh, you know, covering Asia, the transition in China, the handover of Hong Kong, economic collapse in East Asia, going to Japan, South Korea, India, nuclear standoff with Pakistan, all of those things, elections in Philippines. It was a very full professional life that I was having. So the, I didn't have much of a room for Nigeria at the time. Let's just say that it was at the back of my mind. And also I was a bit alienated from it because I really resented what happened to Delegua and the fact that the people who killed him seemed to be getting away from it. So for a number of years, I didn't want to hear anything about Nigeria at all. And it was only much later as you ripen, uh, Shakespeare might put it. Yeah. Uh, once you start achieving ripeness, uh, then you you have a more textured sense of life. And it was that period that I slowly began to kind of emotionally and intellectually reconnect with my country. In a way, you know, not knowing too much about Nigeria or keeping Nigeria at the back of your mind meant that, you know, you mm. could go in boldly, you know. So yes. you probably missed a few things. But I guess, I mean, if you had had all the information ahead of time, you probably wouldn't have done it, you know. So, I wouldn't have. Okay. I wouldn't have. I'm uh, very clear about that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, um, where did you raise more money from? Did you raise more money from abroad or from Nigeria? So you see, I made I made a fateful decision. Uh, in retrospect, questionable decision. I decided that this was something that was going to be done by Nigerians themselves. I wanted us to be sure that we could do it on our own. So I decided, even though it will have been the easier option for me, given my you know deep and wide networks uh, in North America and in Europe and Asia. Uh, to raise money for a thing like this and giving my stature and reputation and so on, it would have been much easier to raise money from outside the country. But I deliberately wanted only Nigeria money. Um, and I think I may have been unduly influenced by Gandhi, who wanted to show that Indians could do it for themselves mm. uh, and asked his, uh, his, his European friends to take uh, a kind of a back seat in the struggle for their independence. So I raised money only from Nigerians, uh, word of mouth uh, from five people, uh, some of whom I knew before, some of whom were introduced by close friends who uh, recommended them highly, and they all agreed to invest, uh, no questions asked. So I'm very grateful to them for that, even though things didn't end uh, 
um, uh, as as well as we had hoped that it might. So I was saying that in retrospect, that was a uh, that proved to be a strategic error, yeah. even though emotionally satisfying it was uh, a strategic error in the sense that the political and business elites were able to put pressure on my investors yeah. since they had. Uh, most of their businesses in other sectors of the economy, whether it was oil or uh, telecoms or banking and so on. So uh, if they couldn't put pressure on me directly, they could put pressure on them, which they uh, went on to do. Um, so if you, just because you invested $2 million in Next, doesn't mean you want to jeopardize your $400 million investment also. in some oil well somewhere. So that was what they used really to eventually to to fatally wound next by peeling off my investors from the enterprise. So when we inevitably ran into financial trouble, it was uh, difficult to rely on the people who had been there uh, from the beginning because of all this uh, external pressure, mainly political and fairly quite brazen. Yeah. Uh, a blackmail uh, against the shareholders. Okay. So that was where I said that, that turned out to have been strategically an error because foreign money will have been impervious to these kinds of pressures. Okay. Okay. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the operations operations of Next, you know, mm-hmm. you you hired 90 people. You had, you had uh, 13,000 applications for people who wanted to work with you. So you, mm-hmm. had, you you picked out ninety out of them. You you ran a twenty four hour newsroom. You know, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. that would have involved you know uh, diesel generators nonstop. Yes, yes. You know, yes. you um, I think I remember at the time someone telling me you started off importing in the paper you used to print the to print the yeah yeah mm. um, yes. I mean, all of these things. You know, did did you go in too big? Did you? Did, what was it? Um, I think the the obvious answer is yes, right? So uh, you you may or may not know that actually our first professionally produced news item was published on Twitter. We were probably one of the first news organizations on earth to publish directly to Twitter. Mm. Uh, Twitter was totally in its infancy, and I think our first uh, news item went out on Twitter on December 2nd. 2008, if I remember correctly. It was either December 2nd or December 4th. Um, And so two weeks after that, we launched our website. And uh, roughly two weeks after that, on January 4th, 2009, the first print edition of the weekend paper next on Sunday, uh, Broadsheet, was, uh, was published. That So for the first couple of months, because our printing presses were not yet ready, we were printing this newspaper in London and then air freighting them to Nigeria. Now, this was all very exciting and extremely high quality and so on. But clearly, it was not going to be financially sustainable. So I suppose in that sense, we were very poor businessmen. We were excellent newspapermen, but very poor businessmen. So I always tell people that... Um, you know, of our two uh, uh, main missions to uh, to affect the direction of the country in a positive way by uh, by by creating an environment where corruption was uh, impermissible in any way, we were uh, uproariously successful 
uh, and uh, we failed dramatically on the sustainability ambition, something that was created to last. So our second big strategic error was ever to have gone into print, right? Okay. Uh, first tra- strategic error in hindsight was raising only Nigeria money because I wanted to show that Nigerians uh, can do this by themselves without anyone else. Uh, the second one was going into print. If we had stopped at 234next.com, we in all likelihood still be uh, alive, alive, today. Uh, alive and well today. And uh, the reasons for, yes, the, the reasons for, for this are uh, several. One, we took a $10 million loan from First Bank to build uh, a new printing plant in Lagos to import uh, like a one-year supply of new sprints. Uh, so basically, you know, your inventory uh, was humongous because you couldn't guarantee uh, an efficient way of getting in your, your newsprint and your a daily newspaper, you can't afford not to come out on a particular date. So we had to spend lots of money up front to import one year's worth of inventory for newsprint and ink and plates and things like that. Uh, we had uh, suppliers in Holland who also published their own newspaper. Their own inventory was four days. Ours was 365. Okay. So you can imagine the competitive disadvantage we're in. So, so it meant we were spending a lot of money up front uh, from, and we're taking this big loan from First Bank to do it. Number two, once we got deep into our mission, which was really very big scale investigations and, and going after everyone, uh, it meant that we were susceptible to pressure on several fronts because we had a printed newspaper. One was the distribution chain. They basically sabotaged uh, the distribution channels. They would bribe distributors to accept our papers, thereby uh, uh, making sure we actually spent the money to produce it, yeah, but then hide them under tables or destroy them and never give them to vendors. So, so they were hitting you on your distribution on the cost of producing the paper. And more crucially, they were hitting you on your main source of revenue of advertising because advertisers, they were already scared of us because of the things we were doing. But then they, sense they, they, they had an out by saying, well, we can't see your paper in the streets anyway. So there was at least a minimally plausible reason why they were withholding advertising, even though we knew the main reason was because they were being pressured not only by the government, but also by uh, a number of key uh, business people with whom they did business. Adenuga was a prime example of that because we had done this big story about Adenuga refusing to pay any kind of taxes and by his own admission, owing 100 billion naira in unpaid taxes uh, to the Internal Revenue uh, Service. Uh, that was unaudited. If they'd audited it, you could probably safely say that he was owing five times that amount. Yeah. Now, the, uh, the, the revenue agency, having failed to persuade him to pay, then eventually just got mad and they went and shut down his headquarters building and issued a press statement saying they had shuttered the offices of Nigeria's second wealthiest businessman and not a single newspaper, radio station, TV, including government-owned radio, would touch the story. 
In other words, a private citizen was able to block the government of Nigeria from announcing uh, an action that was taken by its own agency. And we're talking block. six. We're talking six hundred million dollars. I mean, that was what Next found. Next yeah. found that he was owing yes. six hundred million dollars yeah. in taxes. Okay. Unaudited, just by the one that he admitted he was owing. Yeah. Okay. Nobody touched it except Next. And all through the night as we were producing the paper, he was sending intermediaries to me throughout until about two in the morning that we should kill the story. We said we were not in the business of killing stories and that the best we could do for him was to give him a chance to state his own side. And he refused, and we refused. So we had a stalemate. By Monday morning, he had pulled all the ads of Glow and everything from Next. And of course, anyone who does business with Glow or with any part of his empire who advertised with yeah, Next was yeah. now in trouble. So, case. so that was this, this. Yeah, this was the kind of ways they were able to put pressure on us. And of course, from the political side, once we started, you know, I think we started uh, focusing on the oil industry, which is kind of a heart of darkness in Nigeria, when we wrote a series of stories about real one Lukman, who was then Minister of Oil under Yaradua, say, establishing, documenting the fact that the oil minister was also in the oil business for his own gain, with his companies in which he was invested, doing business with the Ministry of Oil, of which he was minister. And we thought this would create such an uproar in the country and the Senate and House of Rep would go crazy, the unions, students, whatever. It sank like a stone. Nigeria, I remember yeah. the headline very well. Oil minister is in the oil business. We thought this was such a scandal. The Nigerians, they just shrugged. <laughs> I was then... First time I began to realize we may be in serious trouble at next, that our operating assumptions may be completely false. That was the first time the first seeds of doubt began to creep into me. Then we got closer and closer into the old business. By the time we had done the stories that basically forced the political system to follow the constitution and allow Jonathan to become president because he'd been totally blocked by then. And some cabal in the presidency was running our country and pretending that it was, you know, President Yaradua from his sick bed who was doing it. We basically established that the guy had long been brain dead and he wasn't coming back to run any country. Yeah, that, that, was, was, that was a big story. The, the brain, Yaradua, yes. Yaradua brain dead was, I mean, you know, that, I think that for me... I think that was a it was it was a a peak of journalism in Nigeria, you know because yeah, you know I remember that story came out and there was just no more denying it, you know, and there was, yeah, no, was, there, was there was no way for them to deny without actually stating okay okay if he's not brain dead what is he is he half brain dead is he quarter brain dead so what what I was uh, I, I remember very clearly when this thing came out even some of my directors I mean and these were guys who are all very excited very proud about the work Next was doing, but even this one shook everybody. And so they called me, are you sure about this? Because everybody knew if this wasn't true, this was trouble. So I just said to them, I said, guys, let us agree that when it came to making money and so on, you guys are better than me. When it comes to this journalism business, I think you have to take my lead, that we know what we are doing. And all I will say is this, if somebody tells you that what we had done was false, tell them to produce the president, the people who would like to see him. Yeah. I said, in fact, nobody will be happier than us if they produced him 
hale and hearty. And of course, we knew they couldn't. We had researched this to a T and we knew the guy was gone and wasn't coming back. So, and of course, that was exactly what happened. In hindsight, that was the peak of next. Yeah. And after that, even though we began to do a series of truly extraordinary investigations into the Zani Alisimadu case, yeah. the Ministry of Petroleum, and all the fraud they were committing, we had video, we had audio, we had source documents, we published the whole thing. That was the final death knell to next, because they realized then, after sending intermediaries to offer me an ungodly amount of bribe and we'd laugh them out of the room, uh, they then decided these guys were not reasonable, so they pulled the plug, they blackmailed First Bank and so on. First Bank, you know, reneged on an agreement for us to repay the loan, they pulled the loan, uh, advertisers fled, and we were basically isolated and the writing was on the wall that we could no longer sustain the enterprise. So that's how we slowly now bled to death over the course of uh, 2011. So I have a friend who knows you, and you know he likes you a lot. And he, he, one thing he told me was, he mm. said, he said Dele is a great guy, right? Dele is a, he's a great guy, he's and he's an amazing journalist. But he needs mm-hmm. he needs a kick-ass operations guy behind him. Mm-hmm. Now, correct. Now that that sort of sounds correct to me, you know. But then I'm thinking, you know, if you had an operations guy, right, who was basically mm. look, looking after the books, just looking after, mm-hmm. making sure that this opera- this show stays on the road. You know, mm-hmm. how would that have worked? You know, I mean, at what point would you have clashed with that person? You know, so, I mean, it was good that you were, say, quote and unquote, you know, you were just a journalist. You know, you didn't worry about, mm-hmm. you know, what your stories were doing to, to the mm-hmm. to the bottom line of the company. But then, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. do you think it would have worked if you had, say, someone who was just looking after the business, you know, and then you focused on the journalism? You know, I mean, how? Okay. There's a very honest and direct answer to that. The person probably will have kept us alive an extra six months. But the <laughs> fundamental uh, incompatibility of our mission with making money uh, would have remained. It was a, what we were doing. Remember, a newspaper made money from two ways. One, it uh, advertised, and you know, depending on the news organization, it could be 60 to 80% of your revenue from advertising. The remainder from your selling the paper itself. Fundamentally, that's how a newspaper made money. Now, the sources of those two, of those two things, or at least the principal chunk of your revenue advertising, was the political and business elites that were so infernally corrupt and which we were going after. So that would have remained whoever was running the business. And the good thing was that my investors, uh, they all still say till today that I did warn them from the beginning exactly what I was trying to do with this paper. So they were not misled in any way. Of course, you know, talking about something and then seeing it in reality, wreaking havoc everywhere is a different thing. And if you had a telecom license or an oil block or whatever, or you were running a bank, uh, you're chairman of a bank, of course, uh, you will now be considering this thing you'd invested in with great trepidation, if not secretly wishing that it would go away, yeah. because it was a clear and present danger to your other financial interests. That was the fundamental contradiction, and no amount of uh, smart, uh, Harvard, MBA, management would have resolved that. 
Okay, it will have prevented us from making some of the sillier financial errors we made, uh, but it wouldn't have been able to resolve that. It was either we did not, uh, if we abandoned our mission and just did a normal Nigerian newspaper, yeah, in fact, we would even need more, the sort of Harvard MBA types to help us run it. But since we were going to do something that by its very nature was going to make us fresh enemies uh, every day, I don't think there was anything you could have done about that long term. Maybe you survived an extra six months. So, I mean, this this makes me want to ask another question. You know, I'm very, very critical mm-hmm. of Nigerian media today, you know, the mm-hmm. way the way mm-hmm. you operate. So, I mean, mm-hmm. in your view, are they cowards or are they pragmatists? You know, having seen what you've seen, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's hard for me to say explicitly what, what they, whether they're cowards or pragmatists for this simple reason. Whatever it is you set out to do, if you are doing that thing, then I suppose that's fine. So I, my suspicion is that most of them are doing that thing that they set out to do, which is like baking bread or making, uh, you know, widgets. Uh, they went into the newspaper business as a way to make money, the owners of those newspapers, and adapted themselves to the best way they could make money in the Nigerian environment, and many of them are doing it successfully. We had a different mission, so obviously the way we handled ourselves and behaved, the way we trained our young people, the way they would stand up at the press conference when the brown envelopes came out and walk out of the room, uh, which led to their being ostracized in many ways, all of those things, we knew that's the cost of what we were doing. Now, if you were Vanguard or Punch or something else, you know, and you have a different mission and you're following that mission, we can argue whether it's the correct mission or not, but it seems to me that they are doing exactly what they set out to do. Are they doing journalism in the sense that you will hope that in a broken down country, the media could hold up that mirror to the society? To a varying degree, some are trying more than others, but on balance, probably the answer is no. Okay. I mean, it's uh, self-evident, yeah, because obviously. in the Nigeria media today, you can pay to put the story in the papers, and you can pay to keep stories out of the papers. Everybody knows this, yeah, and uh, which accounted lot. for no, no. I mean, for you know, remember the Adenuga story. Yeah. It was the government that issued a press statement that we have closed the Adenuga's headquarters. Nobody carried it except <laughs> next. How is that possible, right? It's, it's, so it's crazy. I think that that answers your question right there. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, when when things got bad, you know, I mean, how did you, what what, what did you do in terms of firefighting? So, for example, I mean, there are stories around, you know, people talk and mm. people have said, you know, next paid too much, you know, they hired people from, mm. you know, they were mm-hmm. they hired people who were working somewhere previously mm-hmm. and then they maybe doubled their mm-hmm. salaries and all. Now, mm-hmm. you know, now you know, going back to what you said earlier about you know the time mm-hmm. when you were working at uh, Newswatch and Concord, you know, you could mm-hmm. you could afford a good life. So I can sort of see yeah. where you were coming from. Right, but right. you know, when things got bad, you know, I mean, what was mm-hmm. what was your approach to resolving? Did you cut salaries? Did you So you know? we did, we tried everything. I mean, mm-hmm. so now the house is on fire, right? And yeah, yeah. so it's, it's now crisis management. Uh, we cut salaries, we uh, let some people go, we, you know, reduce uh, the print run, we we did all these sort of classic things, but the handwriting was on the wall. If you were not making money, cutting costs was not going to get you there. So, but that's basically what we were trying to do. And people have different thresholds for pain. 
And so there was a lot of anger and bitterness in the newsroom uh, to some degree uh, as all of these things uh, were going on where we were trying to save the paper. And in the end, we still couldn't do it. So as to the, um, I've had this accusation before. Our daily was profligate. He, He paid people too much and so on. For what we were trying to do and the quality of people we required and the sort of resistance to some degree we wanted to build in them to simply being given, you know, 10,000 naira here and there, uh, we decided, right on, before we hired the first person, I hired uh, HR consultants and I said, okay, here is what we're trying to do. So for our entry-level journalists, I'm not asking for an improvement over 30 years ago when I was a young reporter like them. I'm only asking roughly the same thing. If you are a qualified reporter who has gone through our process and has survived and has been hired with your university degrees and stuff like that and our training program, what is that amount of money, what is the payment for that person that gives them roughly what I earned when I got to Concord 30 years before. Not a penny more. And how did we decide that? Okay, what is the entry-level car? A Volkswagen Beetle or some equivalent like that. What is the rent for a one-bedroom apartment on the mainland somewhere? Uh, not in a fancy neighborhood. So this is the X amount. So if you bought this car, what is your monthly notes? They worked out the whole thing and they came back to me to say, it's $1,000 a month minimally for them to even be able to approach this. And of course, we gave people health insurance and so on. And I felt that if we were not able to do that, then maybe we shouldn't be attempting to do this at all. We'll just be humiliating people like every other organization there that is uh, pauperizing them and and turning them into into vessels for bribe-taking and so on. So it was clear in my mind that that's what I said. Okay, what would it cost us to do this? And they worked out the numbers. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm not ashamed. I'll do it again. Maybe this time I'll raise a lot more money to give us more runway uh, than I did at the time. But uh, I would do exactly the same thing again. I mean, the fact that we're even arguing over whether you should pay people a living wage, the equivalent of what people there station used to earn 30 years before and nothing more. It shows how deranged the system is, right? And uh, as for this, some of these experienced so-called editors that we had hired, and we did only very few, very, very, very few from existing newsrooms. We brought people from outside mostly, people like Malara Wood and so on. We brought all of them back home. And we had a few from existing newsroom who had been vouched for repeatedly by other people. So in some particular case, we were interviewing this guy, right? He was an editor at this day. This guy had uh, two degrees from University of Jaws, something like uh, 13 or 14 year experience. You know what he was earning at uh, this day? 30,000 naira a month. Wow. I mean, that's crazy. So when people say, oh, yeah, he tripled their salary, that's what they're referring to, right? But of course, at, uh, elsewhere, and it's not for me to be naming any newspaper, elsewhere they were explicitly told that they were free to go look for money to supplement their income from their sources and the yeah. people they were covering. But all of these things were prohibited at next. In fact, it was an article of faith by our people that they did not take anything from anyone. And our young people became really proud of it. And I, I was very proud of them, and I remain proud of them. And anyone who had worked at, at Next up until tomorrow, I am proud of the work they did. 
And sometimes it is not whether you are able to sustain it for forever that matters. It is in the trying. You know, only those who had a bit of courage and willing to bleed for something will take a chance. Otherwise, you can sort of model along, move from Yaradua to Jonathan to Buhari back to somebody else and just go around in circles. If you wanted to break out of it, I was very proud that that was the tack we took, that we were going to break out of it. Yeah. And I, anything else wouldn't have interested me to have left a very highly successful career in a great city <laughs> to come back to Nigeria. It wouldn't have been worth my while to do that. Right. The train is everything. I think I, I read uh, Wally Swinka said that in his book. Um, yes, you know, Bobo Kong. It's right. It's right. You know, yeah, yeah. It's all in the train. Yeah, yeah. It's all in the train. I think he was in Ake. Uh, yeah. He was referring I think it was, to. Uh, uh, you must set for that, Don. His mom. Oh, it might have been that. It yeah. might have been that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, I mean, it's right. It's right. As long as you try. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay. I mean, okay. So let's talk through the the last month of next. You know, when when it was, uh, when, you know, you had hit the wall. You know, when it, it was pretty hellish. It you was knew. hellish. You know, and then you knew but, that. You know, I mean, mm. how did you feel? I mean, when did you know that this thing is over? You know, and you know how? I mean, what was it like? You know, just basically watching something you built, your dreams. You know, mm. watching it just pretty much die. You know, yeah. What was it like? So it, 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 it was tough. It was very tough. It was extremely tough, especially painful because you could see how the most dedicated of your people, the young editors, the young reporters, uh, who refused to quit. Some of them hadn't been paid for a couple of months and so on, and were managing and pushing. People like Victor, uh, uh, you know, bless him, uh, Victor Ikhamena and so on. Yeah. People like Malara Wood, uh, lots of them like that, who were the bitter enders and would not surrender until all hope was gone. So it was a very tough time. It was a very difficult time. And of course, I was referring to people's threshold for pain before. I mean, I don't blame anyone who may not have behaved absolutely impeccably uh, because people can only take so much pain. So, uh, But when we were going through it, there was a lot of blame game. There were Some of them sponsored some false story. Uh, if you search for it on the internet, you will probably still find it. Something like Delia Lodge, they spent 20 million on uh, golf and women and whiskey and yeah, so on. I've read that story. <laughs> which, which, is, uh, which is kind of funny because um, uh, anyone who was inside Next knew that it was only me and Ama who never drew a cent in salary for the entire five years of Next. That even the board eventually had to force us to recognize uh, a, a certain amount of compensation so that it can be provisioned. But we were never, ever, ever paid a penny. So uh, because we, we, we could not bring ourselves to get paid uh, when we were constantly scrambling to pay our staff. So, um, But all of those kinds of things, the bitterness of 
a grand experiment failing led to a handful of people to misbehave a bit. But, I, you know, as, as you have some distance from, from that time, you kind of forgive everybody because you have to be generous. They were very good people. They sacrificed. They, they performed at a very high level and set new standards for the country. So, you know, if you, made, if you were not absolutely perfect, I'm not going to hold that against you. But it was not a pleasant time. You saw the worst and the best of people. And, uh, you know, I will continue to be grateful to all of them, especially the bitter enders, I call them, who, until you switch off the last uh, ball, right, yeah. uh, try, to, try to hang on and try to make it work. But it, it was not pleasant. One of the most like, unpleasant things you can experience is when something is failing. It's almost like a marriage. You know, the last years or the last months of a marriage, probably uh, for those who have gone through it, probably is, is very unpleasant. Uh, I think this 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 must have felt like that. Uh, you can tell me. you can tell it's dying, but you can't stop it. You know. Yes, exactly. You knew it was dying. You're still constantly scrambling to say if you hang on for one more day, some miraculous thing would happen. The last, the death knell for me really was the compromising of First Bank by the by the Jonathan government, uh, where they reneged on an arrangement we'd made because. Uh, the Soros uh, fund was going to, we were negotiating a potential investment of $5 million uh, in Next by them. Uh, I flew out to meet their board in Prague and everything, and we were talking about it. I said, look, there is nothing we would like to do more than this, but it would destroy our equity if you are carrying this standard uh, first bank thing on your books. Right. That is an automatic erosion of equity. We have to solve that problem before we could invest. So I negotiated with First Bank to say, look, you guys advertise uh, every day in all the newspapers anyway. Just advertise every day next. And over 36 months, the amounts would actually wipe out our indebtedness, our exposure to First Bank. And they agreed. They brought their risk people in, their marketing chief, their CEO, and I were talking. I brought our marketing people in, and we shook hands on it, and they were going to draw up the papers. In the meantime, we started doing all the days and stories, and then uh, First Bank stopped returning our calls. <laughs> and since we couldn't resolve that, the Soros people couldn't come in, and so that was our last chance. How much, how much, are, the, how much are the Soros guys going to give you? We were negotiating for a $5 million uh, equity investment or a mix of equity and debt of yeah. some kind. But they said, you know, carrying the first bank debt on your books would destroy their own uh, equity. equity from day one. So unless we could resolve that, they couldn't do it. Okay. So, I mean, all the, sto- all the stuff you bought, you, you, you set up a printing press. I mean, what's happened to all of yeah. that? Well, I mean, the uh, uh, Amcon ended up taking over the loan from uh, First Bank, so it became Amcon's asset. I think they sold them off or were selling them off the last I checked. Um, uh, so all of those assets became Amcon's uh, okay. assets, which is kind of, uh, even though it was something that was saving uh, First Bank from its own decisions, I still am quite opposed to this moral hazard that you know, uh, taking over bad loans uh, meant yeah, because the steps in, yeah, yeah. When when a bank or any other business is making money, uh, they don't share it with the taxpayer, and then the moment they lose money, you now come in with taxpayer money uh, to rescue them. It's just uh, it's it's just wrong uh, to me philosophically. Yeah. But anyway, that's what happened. Uh, 
Okay. It's, uh, so you so you shot you you turned off the lights in 2011. Sorry, I was going to ask you know how many staff did you have with you at the very end? You know, I mean, did the, uh, the, the bitter enders have you called them? Oh, okay. At the peak, we were around 199 total, including the staff of the printing press, administrative staff, marketing, finance, and so on. Editorial, of course, was the bulk of it. Editorial was probably like uh, 50 or 55 or 60% of the staffing, and the rest was all the other departments. So we peaked at about 190, 195. At the end, we were probably down to... Maybe twenty people. Okay. Um, of course, we stopped printing be long before we finally shut down and maintained a sort of a skeletal staff. And I began to write letters of recommendations for people to get them a paying job elsewhere. Some people were getting married in the middle of a crisis, and it was just a really tough end uh, to to an ambitious. Uh, um, uh, an ambitious uh, project. So, but uh, again, to paraphrase Wallace Shoinga, it's all in the try, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I don't regret it at all. But uh, I wish, of course, that we were able to perpetuate it. But uh, uh, it was what it was. I mean, personally, for you, what did this do to you? You know, this this experience. You know, after after you shut it down, you know. After mm-hmm. the, after you know next end, I, I imagine you left Nigeria. You know how? Yeah. What, what did it yeah. do to you personally? What did the experience? You know. Well, it, it was tough. I didn't realize how tough it was. Uh, the sacrifice that one was making. So it was after the whole thing was over, and I went back home to Johannesburg to my family, that I realized that for the previous five years, I had not spent two straight months under the same roof with them. None. And uh, this has great costs. Your children are growing. They're finishing high school. They've hardly ever seen you except you come in for a quick one week and then you run back to Lagos, right? So that was one cost. In fact, I remember distinctly when I finally resettled back home in Johannesburg, um, I felt that I was an outsider, right? As if they locked me out. So, you know, I would be trying things like, oh, you know, there's this fancy new restaurant. Let's, I'll take all of you out tonight. They said, no, we don't want. Um, you know, well, let's go do this at the weekend. No, we don't want to do it. So I was like, they had moved on. The dog had moved into the house in my absence. And when we got the dog, the ag- agreement was that he would always stay outside, not <laughs> in. What kind, of dog? Then, what kind of dog did you get? It, it, it was a boxer called okay. Sandy. Okay. And uh, Sandy had moved into the house, had taken up uh, a permanent place uh, in front of the two bedrooms of my daughters. Uh, things are changing my absence, right? Yeah. So finally, I was quite frustrated by this. So I called uh, a close friend of mine, uh, uh, Watanam Pitusik, uh, a, 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 a Thai uh, woman and fellow fellow of the Aspen Institute. And I said, Watanam, you are very wise in these ways. My family is not letting me in, not physically. But emotionally, they were not letting me in. So she asked me what I'd been trying to do. I said, well, I will offer to take them to dinner. This, that. She says, no, 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 you're doing the wrong things. You must do the grunge work, the, do the dishes and take them for basketball practice and offer to take them to school in the morning. You know, you should do these things. That's how you get back in your, in your house. So I started doing that and she turned out to be correct. Right? <laughs> 
I was trying to enter from above, and she said, you know, you must go in from the basement. Do the dishes and take them to math lesson and basketball practice and make the school run in the morning and so on. And uh, so things thawed gradually. So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect at a personal level was uh, counting the financial cost. Because, uh, you know, as anybody who's ever done this knows, uh, if you were not making any income for five straight years, he destroys your nest egg, right? Yeah. So there was a tremendous financial cost to the family, uh, uh, quite apart from anything else. Then the third thing was I lost interest in pretty much everything. I wasn't interested in writing. I wasn't interested in really working anywhere. Um, I did a bit of consulting on the side, but I was basically disinterested. And so we just play golf and hang out with friends and do a bit of consulting, but nothing serious. I became what I would call a dabbler, right? Yeah. I would dabble in things, but never commit to it. And this went on for nearly four years. You know, and and things were rearranging themselves at the back of my mind. You know, the subconscious kind of works that way until about a year and a half ago, I began to ask myself the question, if I happen to live as long as my dad did, uh, which would give me roughly another 35 years at the time, um, what would, is the one thing I want to do? for the 35 years that I will be totally committed to. And slowly I began to uh, head back to my first love. And so I'm kind of conceiving this project that is not totally ready for uh, announcing, but yeah. which basically will inv involve long-form journalism and as well as convening people around ideas that can push society forward. But I'm sort of done with the daily journalism, you know, stay in the weeds, uh, uh, which I had done for most of my professional life. Uh, I think my, my, my senior citizen years, my eldership, I call it, mm -hmm. should be used in more contemplation of the big things that possibly over time would uh, make the changes we've always wanted. And so one of the lessons one learned, of course, uh, is that um, uh, societies do not change on your own timetable. You just yeah. hope it happens while you are pushing, but you can't guarantee it, right? Yeah. So if you take the case of the Arab Spring, and when this thing started, in was it in Tunis or Algiers? and all these street urchins and so on. There had been apparently something like 70 self-immolations before the one that exactly. sparked it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So how come it never sparked? We when never, all we of never know. Yeah. So we, we can't tell. So, so wisdom allows you uh, to understand that society won't change your own timetable. But it's not an excuse for paralysis or inaction or for lack of trying. Whether or not it happens while you are tilting at it, uh, it's still worth the effort because to me, it's what really keeps you alive. It's what makes you feel like a person. I need to rob against something. Uh, I do not uh, go gently into that good night. So yeah. I, I, I see myself being engaged in anything that kind of helps uh, societies to improve and for our country and our continents in particular to be a place where a, a child can be born and given 
the opportunity to flourish into a productive citizen. That's all we ask. We're not asking that you make millionaires out of everyone. Just yeah. give people a chance to lead productive lives. And that's really what um, I expect to spend uh, the rest of my life doing from my own little corner uh, as a writer and thinker and, uh, uh, and citizen. So, I mean, you won't go gently into that night. So let me put you on the spot. Uh, mm. Yes or no? Will you do this all again? The next thing, would you would you do it all, would you do it all over again? No, uh, a qualified no because I think the stage of my life now is not necessarily ideal for that enterprise. What I would rather do is pull all my resources and networks and so on to support younger people who are doing the same thing. And so it's a qualified no. Okay. Uh, the idea, yes, if I were the same age, roughly, as when I started uh, uh, diving headlong into it, yeah, I would do it. Um, but I think uh, probably it's not the place where I would throw the little energy I have left. It required an enormous emotional and physical commitment, stamina, to stay long nights, day after day after day, not see your children, and so on and so forth. So it probably requires somebody in a different stage of life. You know, guys like you who are, are just around the 40 cut line probably are best uh, positioned to lead that kind of charge. Uh, even better, people in their late 20s to early 30s. Um, but, uh, and I think the example of next probably... Uh, tells them a lot of what they should be doing and a lot of what they should not be doing. I mean, obviously, so, so let, let's delve into Nigeria a bit now. I mean, we can be here all day <laughs> if we start talking about Nigeria. But, you know, <laughs> but one thing, you know, one thing I've noticed, you know, I mean, based on everything you've said, so I can't help but shake the feeling or the sense that, you know, based on what you described from your time at Concord, at Newswatch, mm -hmm. It feels mm. like slow motion erosion. It doesn't look like improvement. What's going on? You know, I mean, we're looking at this country, right? Mm -hmm. You were a journalist in the 80s. You know, you held yes. your own. You were a young man. You held your own. You, mm. you were paid enough. You know, things mm -hmm. are not that way anymore today. And no. you, you came back. You came back. You came back. You try to change things. You know, you break a big story. Mm. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it just, mm -hmm. it drops like, you know. So, I mean, is Nigeria redeemable? Yes, uh, with a little bit of luck and lots of effort, uh, of dedicated effort. And the reason I say yes is this. We are no worse or better than any other group of people on earth. And there have been societies that have been transformed that were in worse shape when the transformation began than what we are experiencing today, however broken uh, uh, we are at the moment. Remember... I, I, I covered China and lived in China in the second half of the 90s. Okay. Um, at that time, even at that time, we're talking mid to late 90s, children still shot in the streets of Beijing. Mm. All right? When Mao died in 1976, China was a completely broken country that probably accounted for, who knows, 3% of global GDP or something like that. Mass impoverishment and uh, immiseration. 
So it took them two years to fight it out, to sort themselves out. Gang of four wanted to take over. They eventually they shot them and so on. And Deng Xiaoping uh, took charge. First thing he did was to go to Guando, Guangdong province, Guangzhou, across from Hong Kong, yeah. and announce that it does not matter if a cat is black or white so long as it catches mice. Thus began the extraordinary revival of a completely destroyed country, where students were murdering their prince headmasters and so on during the 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 the, the cultural revolution. Right? Yeah. It was totally broken. No economic or, or cultural life. It was a ter terribly destroyed country. Yeah. China has now moved the percentage of people living in absolute poverty from something like 70% in 1990 to less than 1% today. It is possible. All right? India is one of the most unequal societies on earth, and they're still one of the most unequal societies on earth. But there can be no arguing that India has not dramatically improved the lives of large numbers of its people over the last 25 years, yeah. right? We are not destined to be going in the other direction. So on the, on the absolute poverty reduction stuff, Nigeria was the only one of the countries sampled by the IMF that went in the other direction, yeah. that increased percentage of people living in absolute poverty, not reduced, right? So we can fix the place. It's just that this is going to be serious hard work and I am persuaded beyond a shadow of doubt that our current system uh, of a form of democracy in form but not in reality is not the way for us to do it. So what's the, way, what's, what's the, way, what's the way forward? <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's a, that's a big, I mean, you've made, that's a big okay. statement you've made, yeah? Yes. So the way forward, in my view, uh, and it is untested and therefore subject to revision and possible even total failure, is that you have to practice a, a form of small wrestling. To go into the system as is now and build a movement that allows you to win the elections on the terms that currently exist. And once in power began to take a machete to the system that we have now. Like, close to the edge of illegality. Not quite crossing it, but close to the edge of it. And until you've smashed all these uh, cartels and gangs and things that run the country, uh, we have no hope of reforming it. So, and simply saying you have a National Assembly, Senate, as of rep, governors, assemblies, commissioners, advisors, and so on, that's not going to get us there. 36 states plus FCT, that's not going to get us there. But the mechanism, the constitutional mechanisms available to us to dramatically change it are pretty minimal, mm. right? Yeah. But. Within that, and if you are willing to fly a little bit close to the sun, you can use the current available instruments to make dramatic change. Uh, and it will have to start with the state having uh, control over its territory. The state does not have such a thing at the moment in Nigeria. Yeah, 
a totally weak state. It does not control its own territory. That's basically the truth. Uh, the levels of violence uh, already tell us that. Uh, so the state has to be competent enough to impose itself on its own territory, has to have a monopoly of violence by hook or crook, and has to dramatically just change the very physical geography of the country in terms of the ability of people to move, the ability to move goods from one part to the other, uh, the political uh, institutions that are created. Uh, as, 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 as a first step, you might even consider simply going to what they call these six geopolitical zones now as units of administration uh, below the federal government. And from that, just have, in the, you know, autonomous cities and towns and villages with their mayors and so on and so forth, running their own affairs under a very tightly uh, prescribed uh, system from the center. But to have that kind of center, you have to really have built something special that seizes control through the means available to you now, constitutionally, meaning elections. Uh, and it's not as hard as people think because we really don't have parties right now. No. We don't. These are not parties. But people are not willing to do the work required. And to be honest, uh, I have a bit of passion for it, but I don't have the strength because it's just, it seems so daunting, but actually it isn't. So I'm hoping you guys will do this and appoint us <laughs> advisors, uh, some <laughs> informal advisors about how it can be done. But I haven't lost hope that the country can be changed at all. In fact, I think Nigeria is relatively easier to transform rather dramatically than, say, a place like South Africa where the structures are so much more entrenched and are, and are more difficult to, uh, to, to, to shift. But I mean, but but look at look at next, right? Look at look at what happened. You know, you went in yes. there, and the whole yes. system, everything, ganged up against you. So the media, for example, wouldn't take your stories. You know, businesses no. pulled their adverts. The government yeah. was hostile. The banks, everything. Yeah. You know? So you look at that kind of system. It's a very very conformist system that is is yeah. very very. It's difficult to change. You know, I mean, it is. You know, however. If you find the right threat to pull, the whole thing comes crashing down relatively easily. There is no foundation there. People mm. have just not committed to carefully studying what are the levers we should pull here to collapse this thing on it, of its own weight. There is no there there. And all these people are cowards. They don't know anything about systems. They just do the same thing they've always done. So, for example, the APC is structured and functioned exactly as PDP functioned, yeah. right? Yeah. They don't know any other way. So it requires smart, inventive, energetic people to change this storyline. And it's a lot easier than we think because the people there now are actually not worthy uh, adversaries because they are too lazy they are too uh, you know uh, monodimensional and uh, all they understand is just power wielding to make money there are so many ways to collapse them but uh, it takes uh, a small band of extremely dedicated people willing to work day and night for years uh, but it may come quicker than they think. But just to get started is very daunting, knowing that the first expectation is that you will fail. The second expectation is you will succeed so much that you will not be able to have any other life 
other than trying to make it work afterwards. <laughs> so. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm I'm an optimist by nature, so you know, I don't mm. want. I, I never. I try to tell myself that you must never, you know, mm. give up on Nigeria to the point whereby you just yeah. feel like you know this place is just a basket case and it's yeah. never going to change. You know? yeah. So, so right. I mean, you know, I agree with you that there's no foundation. I agree with you. I mean, there's no mm. there's no ideology or there's no real belief. Nothing. nothing you know, nothing. underpinning all of this It's just basically. Yeah. You know, it's almost like gangsters just using force. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, it's not mm. almost. Yeah. It's, it, it is gangsters. Various gangs, some more bloodthirsty than others, yeah. some more vile than others, but basically gangs, various gangs, and they're mostly interchangeable. Maybe 1% is not interchangeable. But the rest, you know, yeah. if you look at APC, it's PDP people or Tinubu's people or whatever, and then they go and recruit the PDP people who have not yet joined them to come and join them. So it's not about anything. It's just a simple contest for power so that you can then be the ones in charge of. I mean, what accounts for a guy like the central bank governor still being in the job? It's, um, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, right? I've, I've stopped talking about it because it upsets me so much, but it's just unbelievable. Because that's, this is the first sign to you that these people didn't take over to reform anything. They didn't. Right? A guy like that is a continual rebuke on any pretenses by Buhari that is an anti-corruption crusader. A continual rebuke. So, if you take another example, um, uh, the oil sector, the NNPC and so on, did they structurally change anything? They just put their own people there. Now they're having their forward contracts and so on the same way as DSNE yeah. uh, used to have it. The same. Yeah, I think they changed the names the of some doors. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So they just changed people back and forth. These are essentially the same. It's the same class of very venal, you know, political players. That's what they are with very rare exceptions. And we can count those exceptions on, on two hands. In other words, 10 people tops. So the people who are running the country are basically, uh, I mean, and I mean running it in terms of either making money or exercising a particular public office where you can then use it to make money for you or for your friends and so on. Tops, 10,000 people. Hmm. Tops. Then the rest of the country is just a shambles. And all you have to do is travel around the country to see the magnitude of what we face. Yeah. So we're going through emotions, but the state actually does not exist. You have different political and business factions that are fighting over control of the resources, which is why you would have 7-8% GDP growth for like 10 straight years uh, in the early noughts and still have 50% increase in the percentage of people living in absolute poverty. That does not make any sense. At all. At all. <laughs> at all. We, we, it's turning things on its head, you know? It's, uh... And it is the only country on earth that recorded that. On earth. So, when you look at that, you just know that this is a thoroughly sick thing that doesn't the system does not deserve to survive. If you are going to change Nigeria and put it on a different path, you have to find a way, playing as close to the constitution as possible, to collapse it. That's why I use the sumo wrestling analogy. You use the throw weight of the opponent to shift them off the mat and therefore defeat them. 
it's not that you are using brute force. If you are using the force of this, you know, 400-pound person charging at you, sidestepping it and pushing it across and over the mat to defeat it. That's what I think we need to figure out a practical way of effecting this more wrestling analogy yeah. in our political and social life. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's turn it down a bit now. You know, I mean, away from politics, away from next, you know. I mean, you know, I've been saying, I've been telling people for the past, I don't know, five, ten years now, you know, I want to get into drinking wine. You know, I know you're a wine guy. You know, you're, yes. you're, 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 you're pretty good at, you know, you, you understand the whole <laughs> business. But I find the barriers to entry a bit, a bit daunting. You know, just like any serious hobby nowadays, you know, there, there's so mm-hmm. much to know and understand, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. if you were going to take a young guy who was a, a, mm-hmm. an aspiring Philistine, if you like, mm-hmm. you know, I said, mm-hmm. okay, I want to take you into the world of wine. You know, where, where do we start mm-hmm. from? Okay, it is a very simple question to answer. You start by drinking wine. <laughs> you just start by drinking wine. That's it's the first way to know anything about wine is to see that you actually enjoy a glass or two of wine with dinner or with lunch if you're not going back to work and so on and so forth. And on the weekend, suddenly making sure that whether you cook for your wife or she cooks for you or you go out with friends or you go to barbecue, always go with a bottle of wine. And from drinking a whole variety of wines, you begin to narrow it down to the ones you enjoy the most. So your early days at the experimental stage where you just drink whatever anybody gives you and you begin to know, ah, I really don't like Merlot by itself unless it's blended with Cabernet or I'm a sort of a generally white wine person versus a red wine person. I actually don't believe in those dichotomies because I enjoy both. You know, typically I like to start with white and progress to red. Red is more complex, of course, and more flavorful and so on, but not strictly so. There are also some whites that are absolutely delicious and not only that, even though white wines generally are best uh, had young, unlike uh, a number of reds that will do very well between 20, 10 and 20 years on average for the common wines, uh, the, the whites are better had young. But even so, uh, there are no hard and fast rules. There are some whites that age beautifully, mm. that you will enjoy them far more. So this is all from just drinking wine, taking delight in enjoying wine. Another thing you can then do as a step two is to try and just decide to say, okay, there is a very complex world of wine. I want to understand wine from a particular region first. Okay. Before I sort of pay a bit of attention to others. So if you find that you enjoy, say, Chilean wine, then try and master Chilean wines, right? Or if it's, um, you know, like... uh, uh, Argentine wines, uh, mostly Malbecs and so on that you enjoy. Try and focus on a particular region, not, not, not on a particular wine, because otherwise you are shutting yourself off from the many pleasures of wine, right? Region, not varietal, not grape, right? So you can enjoy Chardonnay and uh, Chenin Blanc and uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc and so on as a variety of whites that you can enjoy, Pinot Grigio and so on. And then the red could be everything running generally from your Cabernet, which is full-bodied, you know, uh, more uh, complex that you generally enjoy with 
we read meat and progressed from there all the way to like the Pinot Noir, which is, you know, very uh, highly textured and more sophisticated palates enjoy a Pinot, Pinot Noir a bit more because it doesn't hit you in the face, right? Mm. Um, so, so you can enjoy a whole variety of wine, but try and understand the region first. I kind of started, say, from California wine years ago, and then moved a bit to French because eventually, if you really love wine, you have to know something about French wines. Yeah. And then moved to Italians, and finally, on account of just my physical presence in South Africa, uh, I've tried to master uh, the, the, the wines produced out of South Africa. Uh, king among them, in my view, being the Chenin Blanc, is the best grape that is produced uh, in South Africa in the Cape region. And, uh, you know, you become friends with winemakers, you visit vineyards, and, you know, you go to a restaurant anywhere, in any city, you live in London, you can go anywhere in the world. You know, ask for the sommelier to recommend something. Always expose yourself to what you didn't know before. So, but there are various entry points like that, but the most important one is that you should drink wine. Drink as much wine as possible. That's what I mean, it, it, it sounds easy, but I guess you know it makes a lot of sense. You know, so, so I mean, you know, this is a what? How many year project is this? You know, I, I want to get from it's a, it's, a, it's I, lifelong. Okay, it's so lifelong. okay, but I want to get from the point of not knowing much about wine to mm-hmm. you know going to a party and you know talking to people about wine like you know like a yeah. serious person. You know, so, so 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 in that case, you need to invest a little bit. So it's like I love golf, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to invest. A bit of your time in knowing how to do it properly. Same with wine. So get a few basic books, wine books, that will just tell you the, this is the history of wine. These are the various grapes that are used to make wine. This is what this is called here and what is called there. Do they make champagne? Because champagne is basically made from Chardonnay grapes or, you know, Chenin grapes or whatever. And then it's just the process that is different. So just know those kind of little basics. You know, I can recommend a book or two. And the New York Times in particular has this wonderful new wine columnist who is not a wine snob at all. You could tell that he has enormous knowledge of wine, but he speaks to guys like you who are just trying to start out and are daunted by the sheer complexity and scale of the whole thing. And he is brilliant in making wine accessible to normal people who are not wine snobs, who are just trying to find out a little bit more about this incredible thing. Because remember, the very first miracle that Jesus performed at Cana <laughs> was turning water into wine. Indeed, indeed. So, so, so this is not to be taken lightly. <laughs> it's, it's a serious essential. thing. It's a serious matter. It's a serious matter. <laughs> a serious matter. <laughs> Jesus recognized this more than 2,000 years ago. So for all these cultures, whether from Iran, uh, Persia, of course, uh, to Italy, to France, my wife and I just spent a few days in uh, Tuscany. And uh, of course, we we spent the whole time drinking too much wine. My wife doesn't drink, so I have the added burden of drinking for two. (laughs) And a a, a burden indeed. (laughs) A a serious burden it is. So, so, So you just... Just get into it, pick up a couple of books, read this guy at the Times, look mm-hmm. at some of the things he's already put in fire. There, are, there is a specific thing, multimedia and text, that the Times published uh, four weeks or so ago okay. on this very question. How do you learn just a little bit more about wine so you could enjoy it better? 
and have a, an intelligent conversation. You don't need to become an expert. You just need to know enough to appreciate it even more. So you begin to recognize what you are drinking. You have a nose for it. Your palate works for it, and and so on. You know what they mean by terroir and uh, varietals and tannins and acidity and all of these things. Don't get too technical about it, but it's actually very enjoyable sort of multimedia to play back in the New York Times. Okay. It gives you a pretty good start. Okay. Plus, he also has a book on Amazon which addresses the same thing. So a little investment of time, not to go crazy about it, but give yourself enough knowledge so you can enjoy it even more. But step one, drink. Drink wine. Okay. Yes. Excellent. Okay, so uh, uh, let's let's close with. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions just about you know books. You know, I love books. I love reading books. And, you know, they 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 you know they've helped my life a lot. You know, um, what are you reading at the moment? Same. So at the moment, uh, and I have this very bad habit, which waxes and wanes, where I could be reading four books or five books at the same time. Yeah, I do the same. But well, yeah. uh, <laughs> but. Uh, at the moment, I finally got around to reading um, uh, The Sellout, okay. uh, this uh, this novel that's set in Los Angeles, uh, this black Ah, character. yes, yeah, the guy about the, um, he was, <laughs> yes. it was a crazy, I think he, it was a really crazy storyline where he created yes. this fictional, yeah, yeah, yeah yes. I think he won an award and, last and year, I believe. Slavery. Yes, he won the National Book Award and yeah. so on. Yeah. It's an amazingly delicious uh send off of the whole idea of racism and political correctness and you know uh the oppression of black people in america so this guy black guy essentially revived slavery yeah 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 in california (laughs) incredibly beautifully written very sharp sense of humor i'm enjoying it tremendously Mm -hmm. and uh also i am reading so i try to because I found myself binging because of my uh, uh, desire to understand what makes a good society. I found myself binging on a lot of nonfiction. So now I've forced myself to only read one nonfiction for every fiction I've, I've read. Okay. So, um, so, of course, I read uh, um, uh, Sapiens, which I think I recommended to you. Yeah, uh, I've read it as well. That was a really yeah. good book, yeah. yeah. Is a really good book. Um, uh, one of the uh, most powerful books I've read in the last two or three years uh, was In the Light of What We Know, uh, which is a novel by, uh, I believe is a Bangladeshi Brit guy who was a Wall Street guy who quit after the disaster of 2008 okay. and went and wrote this uh, fiction. A, an extraordinary piece of uh, of writing, full of intelligence and, and and knowledge, and I would highly recommend it if you hadn't read it. Okay. Um, I am reading uh, a Portuguese writer whose name, for the life of me, just escapes me at the moment. It was set mostly in Angola. Um, Howard French recommended this to me, and I find it the most fascinating uh, book. I will send you an email with the titles and the names of the authors, and you can okay. maybe append to the um, to the podcast or any accompanying text. Okay. Uh, 
So, so just uh, I, I have a voracious appetite for all manner of things. I have recently also gone back to quite a bit of poetry. Uh, so uh, after this uh, Nobel laureate of the Caribbean died recently, I went back to reading uh, some of his poetry. Uh, and of course, uh, I'm reading um, this guy's poetry as well. Uh, my favorite, of course, being, uh, if you translate it into English, means uh, traveler, there is no road. The road is made by walking. Caminante no hay camino. Um, so I'm doing a bit of poetry on the side, but uh, mostly I'm partial to nonfiction because of my obsession with the good society. Mm -hmm. But I've been forcing myself now to do 50-50 with uh, fiction. Okay. So what book, I mean, what, what book have you read that completely changed your mind on something or anything? Hmm... The mind is cluttered. Now, I've read many of them. Um, I will say that a book that shifted me quite a bit uh, was uh, uh, Karl Popper. Um, uh, what was the title now? Basically, uh, his attack on socialism okay. as a, a way of organizing society. Um, and after I read Popper, I found that I was a little bit more conservative than I had supposed. <laughs> <laughs> because I found myself agreeing with a lot of the uh, uh, with a lot of the points he was making about how you organize society, how you incentivize people, uh, and how you have to, you know, kind of fight for things to work for you. And I suppose the reason for me beginning to feel that way is just out of frustration with how broken my native country is mm -hmm. and trying to figure out some ways, even if slightly harsh, that you can kind of right the ship a bit. So Popper uh, has been very influential uh, to me. Um, but uh, my understanding of African society and its weaknesses and strengths were probably mostly provided when I was younger by Achebe. Uh, gave me a brilliant insight into what makes us such wonderful people and such uh, a deranged and di dysfunctional uh, society. Um, uh, showing up, of course, because of my love for drama, uh, but I, I have so uh, many uh, authors that I enjoy because I just read for the sheer pleasure of reading sometimes, not because I was looking to gain something. Uh, but of course, you know, the, the gaining comes almost as a collateral uh, to the activity itself. Uh, so I, I will pretty much read anything you put in front of me. So I remember you in particular tweeting something about the American century or the development of infrastructure in America. Yeah, I, was on, yeah. I was on a train, so I downloaded it quickly, and I think I read it in like two days or three days. Yeah. And that's the way I read. friend recommends something, I jump on it. And I've been doing something also lately now, which is to start going back to some of the things I read in high school when uh, I didn't have I had the innocence of youth and probably sort of uh, en encountered and interpreted them uh, differently. And now to look back 
40, 45 years later and reread the same things and see whether you encounter them differently. So, you know, uh, Anima Farm and books like that, uh, Heart of Darkness, Conrad, uh, I've been rereading uh, and, and, and formulating completely new ideas as if I'm coming to them for the first time. Uh, I have an, an old mentor of mine used to say that philosophy is lost on youth. That mm -hmm. in fact you yeah. need scars from the scars of living that prepare you for the proper understanding of these big questions. Mm -hmm. So if you studied philosophy in college, your, your understanding of it is totally different from having lived another 35 to 40 years from that time and then going back to the same subjects. So that's the sort of thing I've been doing, Hold Men and the Sea, uh, you know, uh, and uh, a particular thing I read uh, recently, almost accidentally because I was supposed to moderate it at a, an Aspen leadership seminar, was Death and the King's Horseman. Mm -hmm. My relationship with Death and the King's Horseman is kind of special because I remember we'd all dressed up nicely uh, on the night in 1976 when uh, the premiere was staged uh, the University of Ife for the opening of Odudua Hall that had just been built uh, on the campus. And that was the play that opened it. So that was his worldwide premiere, Death and the King's Horseman. So I recently reread it. And it's uh, such a delight to have gone through uh, many decades of life since then and then encounter it again. So I, I, I go back and forth like this from new material to old. I'm rereading some of the old Russian masters. And uh, Dostoevsky is a particular favorite of mine because of his impatience with things. He wants to see that transformation right now, and so do I. So I'm rereading uh, Dostoevsky a little bit. Uh, so that's generally the way I approach reading, just read everything, rely on recommendations from people so you can be surprised and serendipity. Uh, unfortunately, Amazon has taken serendipity away from us for, for, to a large extent yeah. by killing off all bookstores and algorithms constantly recommending things for you rather than just being surprised because you're walking in an aisle in a neighborhood bookstore and saw something that just catches attention. Which is the way we picked up, I think it was my wife who picked it up several years ago, uh, the incident of the dog in the nighttime. All right, Turned okay. out to be a totally delightful little novel uh, about autism and so on. Uh, I remember it very well. But it's the kind of thing you encounter just browsing books in a bookstore. There are pleasures to be derived from these kinds of things. So that's my relationship to reading into books. Right, so I thought this would take one hour, but we're over an hour 45, but this has been good. Anyway, I'm going to say this, you know. edit Yeah, I will, I will, you know. So I'm going to say this, I think uh, I think Dele is back, you know, that's, that's, where, I'll, <laughs> that's where I'll put it. So I'm looking forward to, <laughs> I'm looking forward to your next project. You know, you've had, you've had six years now after next, you know, so I think, I think you've had enough time. So, you know. I, I think so too. Yeah, we're, we're, we're looking forward to you coming back and, I can't thank you enough for doing this. You and and th thank you for, for the conversation. I've yeah. enjoyed it tremendously. I always love high-quality conversations, and uh, we should do more. Okay, brilliant. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And that's a wrap for the first episode of Agotash Olu Unaccented. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed doing it. Special thanks to Mena Achineku, who used her editing skills to bring this all together. I'll see you again soon.